Good morning, Gospel City. It is a privilege to be considered one of your pastors. Uh, thank you for your prayers and your support. And it is a privilege for me on the first day of the job to tell you to open your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And while you turn there, I want to begin by posing a question. And this is a, a question that just about every child has asked in one way or another. But it's, it's not just a question for children. This is a question that some of the most brilliant minds in the history of the world have considered. Philosophers call it the fundamental question of philosophy. But it's not just for philosophers either. This is a question that scientists spend their time asking. This is a question for pastors. This is a question for priests of every religion. In fact, this is a question that all of us have probably asked at one point. And the question is, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Surely you've asked this question before. But as we go through Psalm 19, I want you to have this question in mind. Be asking it in a new way. Be asking, why does, why does the universe exist? Why, does, why do I exist? Why does, why does anything exist? And with that question in mind, hear the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." And the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the declaring through the heavens that you are glorious and worthy of praise. And Lord, I thank you for your word that helps us see and, and know and, and know who you are and know how to praise you, Lord. And I pray that we would respond in our hearts by loving you and loving what your word has to say to us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would calm our hearts. I pray that you would keep us from anything that is distracting us. I pray that you would focus on what your spirit has to say to us through your word. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first point for this morning, David encourages us to look up because creation exists to declare the glory of God. David begins this psalm with this epic statement. The heavens declare the glory of God. The term heavens here is it, it refers to everything that you can see that isn't the earth. So David is encouraging his readers to look up and consider the stars. Consider the moon. Consider the dust, the beauty of the dust of the Milky Way. Consider the vast universe that has no end. And David tells his readers to look up and consider the moon and the stars and the sky because they all have one purpose. They are preachers. And they're preaching one message in unison. Day and night, the heavens are preaching, there is a God, there is a God, worship him. The word glory is a word that we as Christians use a lot. The Hebrew word can also be translated honor, wealth, or splendor. And the the literal meaning of the word is related to the word for weighty. Glory is weightiness. That can be kind of confusing if you think about it, but uh, one of the things you do to determine the value of a precious metal, like gold or silver, is you weigh it. And the the weightier it is, the, the more valuable it is. And so the heavens are preaching the weightiness, the value, the honor, the majesty, the glory of the God who is. And when we consider the endless expanse of the universe, it is meant to prompt us to marvel and to wonder how endlessly, infinitely big and mighty and powerful the God who created it must be. And when we consider the beauty of the stars that are too many to count, it's meant to prompt us to consider the beauty and the wisdom and the creativity of the God who created them. And notice the words declare and proclaim. The heavens don't just suggest that there's a God. They don't whisper. Looking up at the heavens should not lead someone to conclude, yeah, I guess there could be a higher power out there somewhere. No, the heavens declare, they proclaim, they scream, they announce to everyone, there is a God. He is real, he is mighty, he is wise, he is powerful. He is, I am. And David goes on to give a couple more examples of how creation declares the glory of God. Look at verse two. He says, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard, but their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So first David encourages his readers to consider the consistent rhythm of day and night. Because every new day, every day that is called today, proves the existence and the power of God. 
every day that the earth remains the perfect distance from the sun so they don't spin off into space and freeze or get too close to the sun and burn. Every day that that happens proves the existence and the power of God. Every day the laws of gravity remain intact where we don't just float off into space proves the existence and the power of God. Every day we have oxygen to breathe and food to eat. Every day your heart beats and you have breath in your lungs proves that God is sustaining you just as he's sustaining the universe by the word of his power. And notice the word pours out. Every day is gushing with evidence upon evidence upon evidence of the existence and the glory of God. In verse 3 and 4, David makes a clarification. He says that the heavens don't use actual words. You, you don't look up and, and, and hear them. They're not actually preaching. But it is so obvious, it is so clear for all to see that no matter what language you speak, no matter what country you're from, no matter what generation you've lived in, no matter what your education is, it is so clear for all to see the message is going out to all corners of the earth. There is a God. There is a God. Worship him. Day and night, this message is poured out like a mighty rushing river. David continues to pile on the evidence in addition to the heavens and the consistent rhythm of day and night. He says, look, look at the sun. The sun does not grow weary. Like, every, like an Olympic runner, it, it runs its race with joy and enthusiasm as it serves its maker, providing light and heat to the world. And the fact that the sun is helping sustain and provide for the universe, or provide for the earth, is proof that there's a big, powerful God that sustains the world. So therefore, in this first section of the psalm, David makes the case that the creation <clears throat> is preaching the existence and the glory of God. The heavens are preaching. The consistent rhythm of day and night is preaching. The relentless, raging sun is preaching. And it is so obvious for all to see. So this, this answers the question. Why is there something rather than nothing? There is something, as we see here in Psalm 19, so that the glory of God can be on display. John Calvin put it this way. He says that the universe is a theater for God's glory. The universe is a theater for God's glory. And every atom in the universe plays a role in the play that was, that was written and designed to give glory to God. The stars are actors in this divine theater giving glory to God. The trees and the birds and the oceans are all actors in the divine theater meant to point us to give glory to God. Lake Michigan is a beautiful actor in the divine theater meant to prompt us to give glory to God. Every human being who is uniquely created in God's image is an actor in God's theater created to give God glory. But as humans, we're, we're a little different. Of course, we're created to give glory to God just like the rest of creation, but we're not just actors. We're also spectators. 
That is to say, we were created with the capacity to worship God and enjoy the theater of God's glory that he has placed us in. And this makes us different from the rest of the material universe. Because the heavens don't know God exists. They just point to his existence. Dogs and cats and birds, they're alive, they have brains, they're smart in a way, but they don't know God exists. They don't have the capacity to worship God and enjoy his glory. But as humans, you and I were created to glorify God, but we were also given the capacity to enjoy the glory of the theater that we have been put in. As Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, puts it, if the cosmos is a theater of God's glory, in this theater, man is both actor and spectator. So this, this begs the question, how are we doing? How is humanity doing? How are we doing in the role God has given us in the theater of his glory as both actors and spectators? Well, the results are in and they're not pretty. Consider Paul's words from Romans 1. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind. Why? Because we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth that the heavens declare the glory of God. Even though creation has made the invisible God visible, so that we can clearly see his divine attributes, namely his eternal power. Even though we know we are in a theater of God's glory, we are created to worship God and enjoy his glory, humanity doesn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. Instead, humanity acts like he does not exist and we live for ourselves. We have exchanged the glory of the immortal God. We worship creation, which was meant to point us to God's glory. Instead, we worship creation and live for our own glory. Do we realize how outrageous this is? How offensive this is? That this is cosmic treason. And just imagine if you invited some of your friends to a Broadway play. In fact, you have some resources, so you're, you're the one who has built this theater. You're the one who has written the play. You're the one who's picked the cast, and you made your son the starring role. And you invited your friends. You gave them front row tickets. They're free tickets to come see. You're so excited to show off the theater that you've built and the play you've written as it shows off your son. But then your friends come and they're wearing blindfolds and earplugs. And the whole time they're booing. Unable and unwilling to enjoy what you've built and designed for their enjoyment. Can you imagine how offended you would be if that happened to you? And what we have done to God is, is even worse. By his grace, he has placed us in this magnificent theater of his glory. But instead of living for him and enjoying his glory, we live as if creation exists for our glory. Instead of pursuing a career for God's glory, 
how often are we really just working for our glory? Instead of raising kids for God's glory, we're primarily concerned on whether or not their behavior is reflecting our glory. Instead of loving our spouse for God's glory, we are primarily concerned and and offended when they don't give us the glory we think we deserve. And even in ministry, nothing is immune from our lust for glory. Even in ministry, how many of us serve different ministries and are, are really primarily concerned with how it might be glorifying us and wanting God to at least share the glory with us? The atrocities don't stop there. We look at other image bearers who are meant to reflect God's glory, and instead of enjoying the creation that God has put us in, we we lust after each other. We commit adultery with each other. We lie, we cheat, we steal. Humanity is full of gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Every square inch of creation is meant to point to God's glory, and yet every single one of us is born into this world thinking that creation exists for our glory. Oh, the the arrogance of man, the audacity, the pride, the foolishness. Not living for God's glory completely misses the point of why everything exists, why we exist. And like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and Israel was kicked out of the land, God would have every right and does have every right to kick us out of the theater for his glory right into hell. But thankfully, the psalm keeps going. And so look down because the scriptures exist to recreate sinners into the worshipers of God. And this is, just, this is just amazing. In verse seven through nine, David transitions. And it might, be, it might seem like an abrupt transition. You know, he's talking about how creation exists to give glory to God, and all of a sudden he's talking about scripture. But if we have this in, in the back of our minds that everyone falls short of the glory of God, everyone exchanges the glory of God for creation, at least we're all born that way then it should leave us asking, Lord, what, you know, what do we do? Lord, we need more. You have spoken to us through creation, but we, we need more. We need salvation. And praise God for the word of God that exists to recreate sinners into worshipers of God. And in this section, David makes six statements about the word of God. In each statement, he says what the word of God is and what the word of God does. And the, the poetic beauty of this passage, it doesn't come through in English translation, but David has packed these statements in, he's crafted them so that each statement is five Hebrew words. And it takes three Hebrew words to say what the word of God is, and two Hebrew words to say what the word of God does. And so what David is doing is he's saying that what the, what the word of God is, it's, it's like beyond words. You can't even express it. And so the poetry is meant to help explain the unexplainable. So let's take each statement one at a time. And let's see how scripture helps us join the rest of creation and do what we were created to do. Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So the word perfect here refers to completeness. It is whole, 
It is sufficient. It is lacking a nothing. It has everything we need. And not only is it perfect in content, it's perfect in power. That is, it has the power to revive the soul. Because as sinners, we're all born into this world spiritually dead. Haters of God. Evil lovers of self. But the word of God has the power to revive us. To cause us to be born again. And to transform us into holy, righteous lovers of God. Able to see his glory and enjoy his glory and give glory to him. It has the power to save and the power to sanctify. Because God's theater is full of spectators who are spiritually dead, deaf, blind, and mute, unable to give him glory and enjoy his glory. But praise God for his word that has the power to revive the soul. Next, sticking with verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So a testimony is a, a statement of evidence or proof. When Christians share their testimony, they're, they're sharing evidence of their salvation. They're sharing evidence that they've been born again. And the word of God is one giant testimony of the nature and the character of God. From creation to the fall to the flood, all the way through the history of Israel to the cross, it is all proclaiming from beginning to end that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And because we see over and over from generation to generation that this testimony of who God is is true, and as we read the word, we can see that he, is, he can be trusted. He should be loved. He should be obeyed. And that fits with the next statement because it says, Obeying God's word makes us wise, makes wise the simple. So the Bible is clear that to be wise is to fear and obey the Lord. And anyone who does not is a fool. There's a lot of brilliant people in this world, but if you don't obey God and fear him, it doesn't matter how high your IQ is, you're a fool. In that sense, we're all born fools. But the Bible has the power to make us wise. As we read it and learn to trust and love and obey the one who wrote it, it will grow us in wisdom and how to live in this world that God has made. So the world is full of fools who exchange the glory of God for the glory of his creation. But praise God for his word that makes us wise and able to live for his glory. David keeps going. He says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now the world assumes that the good life, the life that leads to a lot of fun, is the, the life of freedom, rebellion, not being constrained by God's rules or commandments, that holiness is boring and lifeless, that God just wants to keep you from living your best life. But for those of us who obey the precepts of the Lord, we find that obeying God is the path to the fullness of joy. That obedience rejoices the heart. As a father of a one-year-old, I find myself having to make a lot of precepts in my house. Uh, Back away from the stairs. 
Don't put that in your mouth. Stop eating sand. Stop playing in the toilet. Obviously, I'm not trying to keep my son from having fun, as fun as playing in the toilet is, if you're a one-year-old boy. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to protect him. These precepts are, I'm trying to protect him from getting sick or getting hurt or falling down the stairs or doing something that's just plain gross. And the same is true for God and his commandments. Disobedience brings natural consequences that produce pain and suffering. But obedience rejoices the heart. This world is full of pain and suffering because of sin. It's full of people who have rejected God, rejected his word, and they wonder why they're depressed. But praise God for his word that helps us live for him and enjoy his glory, which is the path to the fullness of joy. It doesn't mean that following him removes suffering, but even in the midst of suffering, suffering can produce hope, produce rejoicing in the heart because we know that God's Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts through the love that has been given to us. And David keeps going, but for the sake of time, we'll consider the last three rather quickly. He says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the world is full of people who are, frankly, they're blind to the glory of God. Their hearts are hardened. They don't love him or desire him or know him or want to know him. But scripture opens our eyes to see that God is, and he is worthy of glory. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of our entire lives. He is beautiful. Life is all about knowing him. Scripture enlightens the eyes to see that we are wasting our lives living for our own glory. It opens our eyes to see that life is about God's glory. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, because the world is world's full of people who don't fear God. They know in their hearts that he exists, but they don't fear him, and they act like he doesn't exist. But scripture helps us see that God is holy, hell is real, sin is sin, and that he is worthy to be feared, and that fearing God is the fountain from which all wisdom flows. Lastly, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The world is full of unrighteous glory thieves, but the word of God has the power to transform us and make us righteous altogether, loving God's glory more than our glory. Therefore, with with these six statements, David is saying that the word of God has the power to take sinners and revive them and transform them into worshipers of God. It has the power to do this because it is the word of the Lord. If you notice in all six statements, the one thing that it has in common is it says, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord that is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is altogether true. And because it is these things, because it is spoken out by the same God who spoke the universe into existence, This word has the power to revive the spiritual dead. It has the power to make wise the simple. It has the power to rejoice the heart. It gives sight to the spiritual blind. It produces the fear of the Lord from which all wisdom flows. It produces comprehensive righteousness. 
The universe was created to be a theater for God's glory. He placed us in it as actors and spectators. But we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we lust after our own glory. But praise God for his word that has the power to recreate sinners into worshipers. Amen? So as we consider how the heavens declare the glory of God, as we look up and as we look down and we see, praise God, the word has the power to recreate us. Let that lead us to look within and ask, is the word of God transforming you into a worshiper of God? Is the word of God transforming you into a worshiper of God? Because after David proclaims that the word of God has the power to recreate sinners, he goes on in the, the last part of the psalm to demonstrate that the word of God is doing in his own heart and life what he says it has the power to do. He is demonstrating that the word of God is taking him and recreating him into a worshiper who loves God's glory and wants to live for God's glory. And so as we walk through the last part of the psalm, I want, to be at, I want you to be asking yourself uh, a few questions that we'll put on the screen to, to help us consider, is, is there evidence in my own life and heart that God's word is transforming me day by day to love my glory less and to live for God's glory more? So the first question is this. Is the word of God transforming your desires? Is the word of God transforming your desires? Because David says, the word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So here, gold represents material wealth, material things. And David says, the word of God is more valuable than all the treasure in the world. And honey represents sensual pleasure, things we enjoy with our senses. And for David, his greatest desire was to feast on the word of God. Can we say the same? Can we say, do we, do we see God's word as more valuable than money? Do we see God's word as more valuable? Do we desire it more than we desire that dream home or that new car or a comfortable retirement? Are we living our life pursuing the treasures in God's word or the treasures of this world? And what about our sensual desires? Do we desire to feast on the word more than we desire to be on our phone? More than we desire to be on Netflix or social media? And the answer to that question, you can tell you, what, what do you wake up and think about? You get out of bed. What, what, is your, what is your heart pulling you to? Is your heart pulling you to want to be with your maker in his word? Or is your heart pulling you, drawing you, wanting you to be on your phone? Or do something else? And we see in David's life that he, he considers the word of God more precious than all the treasures and the pleasures in the world. Because he has come to see that the word of God is what recreates us to do what we're created to do. Which is give glory to God and enjoy his glory. And what's more valuable than that? If we do not see the word of God as more valuable than all the treasures and pleasures in the world, we do not yet see it as we should. So Lord, transform our hearts 
Help us to desire what you desire. Through your word, help us to desire your word. Number two, is the word of God transforming your view of sin? Is the word of God transforming your view of sin? Verse 11, David says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward, for who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So most people in the world, if, if you ask them, they, they have a pretty high estimation of themselves. They, they think they're generally a good person. You know, they, I, haven't, I haven't killed anybody. I've, they, they think they're a good person. Well, the reason for this is because most people don't consistently look into the mirror of God's word that helps them see their hearts as it truly is. But here David, David is aware that he, he is so sinful that he has sin that he doesn't even know about. And so he's asking the, the light of God's word to be shown into the darkest corners of his heart. And he has come to want to get put to death those sins because he has come to see God as his creator and wanting to do anything other than sin against his Lord and maker. And he's aware that he is capable of the most presumptuous, egregious sin apart from God's restraining grace. And so as the mirror has shown in, to, has the, as the Bible has shown into the light of his heart, or the, as it, it's been a mirror to help him see his heart, he's like, Lord, keep me from sin because it helps me see who I really am apart from your grace. So is this happening in us? Is the word of God increasing our awareness of our sin? Is it increasing our hatred of our sin? If, you think you're, if we think we're generally good people apart from God's grace, then we don't read the Bible enough. We don't pray enough. But the paradox of the Christian life is that you, the more you grow, the more you realize your need for growth. And praise God for his grace. For he who is forgiven much loves much. That is the cycle of Christian growth, to see more of our sin, to repent, to trust Christ, and then he responds by cleansing us of our sin and helping us walk in newness of life by his grace. Number three, lastly, is the word of God transforming your view of Christ, the Redeemer? So David, here, look how he ends the psalm, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David begins the psalm by saying, the heavens declare the glory of God. And he ends the psalm by saying, Lord, may, may, may the meditation of my heart and may my lips declare your glory. May it be pleasing to you. And so this cause, should cause us to ask the question, well, why is there so many people in the world who are blind to God's glory, who don't see him, who don't want to live for him, and yet why are there some people, why is there a remnant like David, like us, or the church, who see God's glory, who want to live for him, who enjoy his glory and not live for our own? And the answer is here in this last verse. David knows God as his creator because he has come to trust in him as his redeemer. And here's what I mean. 
I have a friend who he grew up an atheist. He, was, he didn't just think there wasn't a God. He didn't just doubt God's existence. He was convinced there is no God. But he went off to college. He had some friends who kept inviting him to a Bible study. They kept inviting him. They kept inviting him. And eventually he came. He was like, let's see what these crazy Christians believe. And he, his, immediately his heart was drawn to see him. He, he, kept, he kept coming. He kept coming. And then his, his friends, he kept, he kept having questions. And his friends would share the gospel with him. They'd point him to Christ. And eventually in his dorm room, he, he repented of his sin. He admitted, he confessed that, that God is real and that Jesus is Lord. And he put his faith in Christ. He repented of sins and he was born again. But he said that at that moment, he didn't necessarily feel any different. He didn't feel alive. But the next day, on his walk to class, a walk he'd done a thousand times, he, he noticed the sun, the beauty of the sunrise. He noticed the, the beauty of the trees that were changing colors. He, he noticed the, the birds chirping and, and all of those things that he'd been blind and deaf and mute to his whole life, it all of a sudden caused him to praise the Lord because he could see that those things are declaring the glory of God. And so what had happened is the blindfold had fallen off, the earplugs fell out, and he could see that he's been placed in this theater of God's glory. And the, the difference is he'd come to trust Christ as Redeemer, and that is how he was born again, to have eyes to see what he was created for. And the same could be true for you. Because we're all born spiritually dead, blind to the glory of God, rebels against God. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you believe that he died a substitutionary death on the cross, if you believe that you are a sinner in need of his grace and that he is the only hope for redemption, if you repent of your sin and put your trust in Christ, you'll be born again. And you'll have eyes to see that you were placed in this theater of God's glory, designed and created to know him and enjoy his glory forever and ever. Is that your testimony? If it is, then spend the rest of your life diving into the word of God so that the word of God can transform you and recreate you to be a worshiper of God who loves his glory, lives for his glory, and reflects his glory as he recreates you into the image of Christ, who is the invisible image of the invisible God, who is the God of glory. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you for creating the heavens, creating the universe, so that your invisible attributes could be on display. Lord, we thank you for creating us, for, for placing us in this theater of your, of your glory and giving us the capacity to know you and love you and worship you. Lord, forgive us for thinking that this world exists for our glory. Forgive us for how we have come into this world not loving your glory, living for ourselves. But Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word that points us to Christ, our Redeemer, who opens our eyes to help us see and know our maker through our redeemer. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would help them trust in Christ to redeem them and open their eyes to the theater of God's glory that you've placed us in. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen.